Well, we can turn back to the passage you read there, Luke chapter 24. And I would like us to think about verses 44 to 49. And I can just reread them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I suppose if we were reading this passage for the first time and we did not know about the other gospel accounts, we would think that everything that's described from verse 36 down to verse 53 happened on the same day. And yet we know that from the other gospel records between verse 42 and verse 50, there's 40 days. Because Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 that he was with them for 40 days teaching them. It's obvious verse 42 describes the day that Jesus rose from the dead when they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. It's also obvious that verse 50 refers to what happened on the day of his ascension as he led them out as far as Bethany. And that raises the question, when did verses 44 to 49, when were they delivered? by Jesus? The answer to that question all depends what's meant by the word then. And the word then occurs twice. It occurs at the start of verse 44 and it occurs at the start of verse 45. There are obviously two options regarding when that Jesus said these things. Does the word then mean the word immediately? Or does it just refer to two things, two occasions after this resurrection day? What did Jesus say to his disciples on this resurrection evening? 
Well, the other uh, gospel writer that gives us some of the statements that he made on this evening is the Apostle John. And what he said to them on the, this occasion, we're told there in John chapter 20 and verse 22 and 23, he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And then he breathed on them. So suppose it may matter too much, but it looks to me as if verses 44 and the following down to verse 49 were not really said on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, but that they are a summary of what Jesus taught the disciples during the 40 days that he was with them before he ascended. And what did he say to them? Is the question, isn't it? And I would just like to look at what I think are the three things he said to them. What he highlighted during these uh, 40 days. And the first one is that he said his message and the message of the Old Testament were the same thing. He says that in verses uh, 44 to 47. And then in verse 48, he describes the role of the apostles. These people who were meeting with them on this resurrection day. What were they going to be doing in the future? And he tells them, you are witnesses. Witnesses of what? When he says, witnesses of these things. And then thirdly, he mentions there in verse 49, the promise of my father. When that is fulfilled, you will be clothed with power from on high. But obviously, it's still in the future, because he says to them, stay in the city of Jerusalem until that happens. So I'd just like us to think briefly about these three points. The message of Jesus and the Old Testament the role of the apostles, what were they to do, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Regarding the, the connection between Christ's own message and the message of the Old Testament, he says there in verse 44 that his words the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, they said that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And what was everything written about him in the law of Moses and 
the prophets and the Psalms. And he tells us what it was there in verse 46. And it basically comes down uh, to two things. The first one is that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's the first of two things that the Old Testament is all about. And the second feature that marks the Old Testament is that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. I don't know how we would answer the question that somebody came up to us and said, what's the Old Testament all about? What is the message of the Old Testament? And perhaps lots of answers might be given to that question, but here the Savior tells us what it's all about. And it's about, at that particular time, when he was speaking this, it's about two things. One of the things has happened. That is, that he should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It's just happened, as far as the timing when he said this is concerned, but it's passed. So one part of the message of the Old Testament is fulfilled. It's happened. The second part was future when he said this, although it actually describes the current situation. What's actually future is that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And that's what's going on today. And that's the message of the Old Testament about today. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and because he did that, repentance for the forgiveness of sins can be declared. Now, when we think of the Old Testament, well, it's not too difficult to find verses that describe his suffering. We automatically, I suppose, would go to things like Psalm 22, where, as it it starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on to give uh, insight into the cross, but it's, it's not an insight, insight into Jesus from the outside. I mean, Psalm 22 is insight from the inside. Inside Jesus himself. What he felt on the cross. And of course, that's astonishing, isn't it? How, how could somebody possibly predict what somebody would feel thousands of years or hundreds of years into the future. But Psalm 22 does it. And in it we have the arguments. I don't mean arguments in the sense of being disagreeable. But in in Psalm 22 we have the reasons by which Jesus on the cross almost rationalized his experience. And when we read it, we're amazed at what he comes up 
the statements he makes on the cross. And it's good for us to read that and just say to ourselves, did Jesus think that? And just to go through it, and he talks about the people around him on the cross. They pierced my hands and feet. They gambled for his clothes. Psalm 22 tells us that. It also tells us how far he's going to go before God hears his prayer from the horns of the wild oxen as they're about to pierce him. Psalm 22 is very profound. No one has ever plumbed the depths of Psalm 22 except the one who used it. And then Isaiah 53 well, as has often been said, it's like a newspaper report of the cross. And as the various things are listed there, and as we read them, it's astonishing. We would almost think that Isaiah was sitting at the cross. And of course he says, near the beginning of that, Prophecy, who's believed our report? Nobody. And that was his mission. As Peter says, they spoke about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. And Isaiah, there in Isaiah 53, but also elsewhere, and also in other Old Testament passages, Great insight is given to the suffering of Christ. But imagine saying Isaiah 53 and nobody believing a word of it. And that's what he says. Who has believed our report? It's almost as if he's saying, show me one person who's believed it. But anyway, we can believe it. And Jesus says there that what happened both in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, because both of them describe somebody who dies, and yet after he dies, he rules over the nations. And therefore, in order for him to rule over the nations, he had to be raised from the dead. And that's what he says here himself, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And he himself, when speaking to, I think, to the Pharisees, said to them that the experience of Jonah was a picture of his experience, even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or if we want a psalm that looks at the resurrection, Psalm 16. And again, it's, it's Jesus on the inside. 
It's not merely from, from the outside. It's giving us beforehand what he would think. Therefore my heart is glad and joy shall be expressed by my tongue. But you will not leave my soul in Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So they're all there. Many of these uh, amazing statements about the person and work of Jesus. But what about the other aspect of the message of the Old Testament? That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Where does that happen in the Old Testament? Well, how about Psalm 22, verse 27? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. What does the word turn mean? It means repentance. That's what repentance means, isn't it? To turn round, to do a complete circle, as it were. Well, it can't be a complete circle, but then you end up back where you were. But to do a complete half circle, as it were. Turn round and face the opposite direction. And that's a psalm that says, All nations shall do it. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. And Isaiah says the same thing, basically, in Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I mean, that's God inviting people to repent when he says, turn to me. I mean, it's a kind of word picture, isn't it? When God speaks to them, they've got their back to him. But he says to them, turn to me, face me, And who does he say it to? All the ends of the earth. Everywhere. So we, we can say that the Old Testament is just as evangelistic as the New Testament. It's a big mistake to say that the New Testament is about Israel. I mean, Israel were meant to be the light to the nations. But they failed. But it was still the message of the Old Testament that the nations should repent. And Isaiah says that again in Isaiah chapter 59, 19 to 20. And the, again, the, the concept is global. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be announced. That was the message. 
But it wasn't that it would, just be, that it would only be announced to Israel. It was announced, it was predicted that it would be announced all over the world. So in these verses that just read from Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth shall remember, that includes Inverness. And turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, Inverness. And so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west. What was west of Israel? Inverness. And everywhere else, of course. So there's this marvelous message of the Old Testament about the suffering and risen Savior and him having done that. This message goes out of pardon. And what kind of pardon is it that goes out? How many sins are included in the forgiveness of sins? Well, for those who repent, you know, it's, it's impossible just to repent of one sin. There's no such thing as a sin that can be totally isolated and that anybody repents of that one sin. Every sin has got numerous aspects to it. But how many sins are forgiven when a person repents? All of them. It's a full and a free forgiveness. Repentance. You know, sometimes I think we give the impression that repentance is the negative side and faith is the positive side in the response a person should have. And that somehow repentance is a kind of lesser desired response by God. But God approves of repentance. God expects repentance. Jesus has been highly exalted to give repentance. Repentance is not something to be shunned. It's not something to try and get over as quick as possible. Repentance is a normal feature of a healthy Christian life. Until we draw our last breath, if we are Christians, repentance is the norm. And if we don't want to repent, there's something far wrong with us. How else do we get rid of the burden? So I'm sure we know one of the covenanters there, when he was about to, be, to die, just said, farewell, sweet repentance. Mm -hmm. 
Do we find repentance sweet? If something is sweet, it's nice. Good for us. Do you think it's rare today that people repent? It's easy to identify what's wrong. And it's easy to identify what's wrong with ourselves. But when we find something wrong with ourselves, do we repent? We deprive ourselves of great blessing if we don't repent. Indeed, if we don't repent, as Christians, there's an element of self-righteousness that we're almost saying to the Almighty, I don't need to repent. But anyway, this marvelous message is there. In the Old Testament, they shall turn to the Lord. Face them. See the welcome he gives to penitent sinners. I mean, that's the message of the prodigal son, isn't it? Who's in a hurry in that parable? Not the prodigal. He's walking back. But the father runs to meet the returning penitent. But the message of the parable is obvious. Before we experience the embrace of the Father, repentance. Repentance is a rational action thoughtful it's also an emotional reaction and we are fully aware that emotionalism is wrong mere emotionalism but a lack of emotions is also wrong because we are emotional creatures And if there's anything that should make us ashamed, embarrassed, it's our sin. And this is the message. Repent and be forgiven. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn. And on whose authority is all this to be done? 
verse 47, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. I mean, that's what he said, wasn't it, in Matthew's? All power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore. That's his authority. In his name, as Paul said, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Imagine speaking on behalf of Christ. I know we're liable to think ministers should do that. And so they should. But so should every Christian. In his name, on his authority, representing him. It's almost as if a saying, if Jesus was here, what would he do? What would he do if he was here? What would he say? What would he say to our sophisticated 21st century? He would say the same thing he said to the 1st century. Repent. And you'll be forgiven. It's the message for all time. Predicted in the Old Testament. So, that's why he explained to these men. And he told them where they would start. Beginning from Jerusalem. It's difficult to know if the phrase beginning at Jerusalem goes with what precedes it or with what comes after it. Should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Does that mean the word beginning is rightly preceded by a comma? Or should it be a full stop after the word nation? And what he said in that case would be, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. I'm not aware of any message in the any passage in the Old Testament that says it would begin at Jerusalem. There are passages that refer to Zion and all things like that. So I think the clause beginning from Jerusalem refers to what comes afterwards. This is where you're going to start explaining the Old Testament. Jerusalem, the city that crucified him, that showed their contempt for him. Begin there. That gives us great insight into Jesus. But then what did Peter do on the day of Pentecost? He took the Old Testament and used it to show that it referred to everything that was going on there and then. 
and the call for repentance to these Jerusalem sinners. And they were forgiven. So that's the message and the Old Testament. Then secondly, the role of the apostles. What is their role? There in verse 48, you are witnesses. And as I was thinking about this, I was quite struck by the number of times they referred to themselves as witnesses. And bear in mind, they can't be referring to their physical presence at the cross because they weren't there. And nor were they there when Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't see him rise from the dead. They only saw him after he had risen. But they keep referring to themselves as witnesses. Peter, for example, writing decades after this occasion, said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as their partaker in the glory is going to be revealed. Late earlier in that, <clears throat> when they were told um, not to preach about Jesus, Peter and John said, we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. In Acts chapter 10, as he speaks to Cornelius, the soldier, who was wanting some information, Peter says, We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say, But to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. And then Paul says about them later on, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. I wonder what it means to be a witness. As I said, I don't think it means that they actually watched the suffering because most of them were not there. The only one we know that was there was the Apostle John. And none of them actually saw the moment he arose. But as witnesses, it looks to me as if what Jesus is saying to them, you're going to say the same things as the Old Testament said. The Old Testament has spoken about my sufferings and my resurrection. And the Old Testament is about all the nations coming to repentance. And you as my witnesses, you're going to testify to the same things. And they might have said to him, but they didn't, but they might have said to him, us? doing that and if they had said that to him 
he had the answer to it. But they didn't say it to him. But he gave to them the assurance of how they'd be able to do it. There in verse 49, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. He's referring, of course, there to the coming of the Spirit. A marvelous day. The birthday of the church. Pentecost. I mean, there was a hymn somewhere heard years ago, but go spread the tidings round wherever man is found. The comforter has come. What a great day in the history of God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit had been there before in the world, but never to the extent that he would be after the day of Pentecost. Why is he going to come? Because the Father promised it. The promise of my Father. I mean, that could be a reference to the promises in the Old Testament about the coming of the Spirit. Like the one in Joel that Peter goes on to quote in the day of Pentecost. About young men seeing visions and so on. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved when that day happens. Or it could be the promise the Father gave to Jesus before he came into the world and said, if you do all this and suffer and die, I will give you the Holy Spirit and you will give it to your people and they will be clothed with power from on high. A wonderful picture that, isn't it? Just imagine yourself, stop in a minute, but just imagine yourself seeing somebody walking down the street and you're talking about him to somebody else and the other person says, what was he wearing? And you say, a brown suit or something. Imagine them saying, today I saw an apostle what was he wearing? He was clothed with power from on high. And whatever else can be said about clothes, they're visible. People see it. It defines them. Just as the man in the brown suit is identified by his brown suit, so these men, these individuals who are 48 hours or 72 hours before this had run away. And Jesus says to them, you will be clothed with power from on high. And they were enveloped with power. It became their almost the definition of an apostle. Wherever they went, divine power showed itself. 
whether they spoke, even the way they walked, even their clothes. They were enveloped with power from on high. And Jesus says there, we'll, we'll stop with this, but in verse 49, I mean when, if I say behold, it may have a certain level of interest. But when Jesus says behold, he means us to take notice, doesn't he? Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. And when he comes, you'll be different. It's a great day for the church, wasn't it? There's no apostles like these men today. But the same spirit is here. No different. And why is he here? <clears throat> He's here so that the message of the Old Testament would be a living reality. That the message of the Savior who died and rose again, when that is combined with the requirement for repentance, Divine power is seen. And therefore, that's our privilege. It's not our possession to keep to ourselves. We would love to see a world where all the inhabitants were marked by tears of repentance. And therefore, we should pray for that, shouldn't we? That there be floods of tears. Anyway, shall we pray?